0: The word of God reads, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come and he said with what can we compare the kingdom of god what parable shall we use it for or use for it it is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade let's go to the lord in prayer Father, once again, we, we, we thank you uh, that we can congregate on Sunday in this building to lift praises, to celebrate your son, to study and unpackage your word, to hear you speak. We thank you for the resources that you make available to us to make this happen. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that this moment would be a moment where you would speak to us, where we would hear your voice where we would come away from this Sabbath service being able to confidently say that I heard the voice of God through his word. And so, Lord, I allow me to preach clearly and with unction. And, Lord, we also pray uh, for the many families that weren't able to join us today uh, due to illness and injury. Uh, Lord, we pray for healing over their bodies, uh, whether it's the parents or the children uh, or even single members. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would heal them so that they can join us again uh, next week uh, and we can enjoy their company and worship together alongside them. Lord, I pray that you would watch over the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I became uh, a Christian at the age of 21. And uh, I remember a year or two after my conversion, I had a particular friend at my church. Um, He was a very close friend. We'd go to the gym together. Uh, We'd go play soccer. We were very obsessed with soccer. Uh, We'd play soccer together. And um, in many ways, we were very similar. uh, Because before I became a Christian, I was very honest and open about the fact that I was an atheist. And he was very much the same. He would tell the leaders of the church, I don't get it. This gospel that I'm hearing each week, I don't get it. And because I don't get it, because it doesn't make sense, I don't believe it. If it doesn't make sense, how am I going to believe something that I don't understand? Um, And so after my conversion, I took it upon myself to organize weekly catch-ups with him, um, to explain the gospel to him as best as I could, with what little knowledge I had at age 21. I thought... uh, I'll lure him with the offer of Domino's pizza. And every Friday afternoon, we'd meet at church and we'd chat till late evening. Just like an atheist that I once was, he had a lot of questions about the Bible. And so I'd sit there trying to answer every question he had the best I could. If I didn't know the answer, I'd spend the next week researching till I found the answer so I had something that I could share with him the following week. And we did this on a weekly basis for about three to four months. And I remember at the end of the four months, I asked him, do you believe? I'd answered all his questions. and I thought, I've done it. He said, do you believe? It's like, no. Like, Why not? Well, what don't you get? And I tried explaining the gospel. I'm like, let me explain it again. And he goes, stop, 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 stop. I said, look, I, I get it. You, you explained it very clearly. I understand the gospel. I understand what the cross signifies. I understand why it's so important that Jesus rose again from the dead. I understand what's on offer with the gospel. If I repent and I believe in him, if this is all true, I understand that. And um, believe it or not, I, I appreciate the free pizza. But I just don't believe it. And then he went home. He took the pizza with him, the leftover pizza. And he went home. And I remember I sat, it was like a shed that we met in, a a renovated shed. And I sat in that shed for like the next hour after he left, pondering on where I went wrong. I poured my heart into trying to make him a believer and I started wondering, what went wrong? And we'll come back to that a bit later in the sermon. But if you're not aware, if this is your first time joining us, uh, we are continuing a series in Mark's Gospel. And if you remember last week's sermon, I pointed out that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's gospel, by comparison, is probably the most action-packed. It's a lot more fast-paced. I mentioned that Mark likes to use the word immediately, uses it 41 times um, throughout his gospel. You know, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, and he came up out of the water. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Chapter 1, verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, One eighteen, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. It's not like he was trying to fill a word count. He just wanted to pack as much information in, and he uses that word immediately a lot. Uh, and so whilst there is a lot of detail in terms of the actions and the movements of Jesus in his ministry... Um, what we find when we come to chapter 4 is a very rare instance in mark's gospel where instead of an itinerary that Jesus went here then he went here then he went here we find in chapter 4 mark zeroes in on the teachings of Jesus in particular these parables and we saw that uh last week that chapter 4 the whole chapter is filled with parables and we looked at the the parable of the sower last week where we saw Jesus sat on a boat uh And he preached whilst sitting on a boat with his apostles. And there were thousands of people standing on the shoreline, straining to hear Jesus preach. But then we saw that out of the thousands that had congregated by the beach, only a small handful of people, including the apostles, had the humility to come to Jesus to actually ask, what on earth were you, like, what was this all about? I had no idea what you said. Come on, explain it to me. And from verse 20 onwards, we see uh, that the parables that come after the parable of the sower, they're all focused on this small group of people that came to Jesus looking for answers. Uh, And we know this because the large crowds that were present in last week's passage aren't mentioned again throughout the rest of the chapter. Um, There's no mention of them. And so before we begin our study of today's parables, um, I just want to set one reminder that Jesus gave to us in verse 11, the, the, the context of the parables, all of the parables in chapter 4. Jesus told us in verse 11 that these parables are about the kingdom of God. So if you're ever reading through chapter 4 wondering what on earth is this all about, you have a bit of context. These parables are all about the kingdom of God. Because if you if you remember for so long, the people of God, they were waiting for the arrival of their messianic king. They got conquered by the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And all this time, they had these promises in Scripture from the Old Testament prophesying about this coming kingdom, this eternal king that's going to come. And then suddenly, after hundreds of years of silence, John the Baptist appears in the New Testament preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near, it's coming, it's close. And then finally, the king appears. Jesus appears on the scene. So the king has arrived, the kingdom has arrived And so, yeah, ever read chapter four, you wonder what it's about. It's about the king and his kingdom. Now, today's passage, uh, Jesus begins in verses 21 to 23. Um, And for these verses, I'm going to read from the NIV translation. Um, I'm actually becoming a bigger fan of the NIV translation uh, I used to joke around that it was the non inspired version and the ESV was the extremely superior version. But I'm finding that the NIV has quite a lot of merit to it. So, verses 21 to 23, it says, He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what you'll find if you read through the Gospels is Jesus likes to ask a lot of rhetorical questions. Uh, I joke around and say, in this instance, uh, Jesus is very similar to my wife, uh, because my wife likes to ask me a lot of questions, uh, usually when I'm in trouble or she's frustrated with me. Um, For example, if we're in a rush to go out and I can't find my car keys, look for it, look for it, and then she'll ask me, I always find this a bizarre question to ask someone that's looking for something, where did you leave it? (laughs) What? If I knew, I'd know where the key is. Or if I leave a cup out, she'll ask me another rhetorical question. If I have a glass of water, forget to put it in the sink and I'll go upstairs, I'll hear someone from downstairs yell out, who left this here? (laughs) And I say the rhetorical questions because it's like, who left it here? The only other people in our apartment is my dog and myself. And clearly, it's not my dog Logan. Um, But Jesus does the same thing. And whenever Jesus asks rhetorical questions in the Gospels, um, he'll do it for arguably the same reason my wife says she does it to set up a learning opportunity. Um, For example, we see Jesus often when he speaks to the Pharisees, he uses that phrase that I mentioned a few weeks ago Have you not read the scriptures? What an insulting thing to say to someone that spent their entire life reading the scriptures. That's all they did. They memorized from Genesis to Malachi, word for word. And you ask them, "Have you never read the scriptures?" Or John chapter 5 verse 6. I would, like I know he didn't mean it in a comical sense, but I always found it like well, just, I don't know, I find it a bit funny. In John chapter 5, you find this crippled man that hasn't walked for decades, 38 years he hasn't been able to walk. And he's laying by the pool at Bethesda, and Jesus goes up to him. And this guy's been seeking healing for 38 years. 38 years. He's dreamt of the day that he'd get healed and be able to walk again. And Jesus goes up to him and says, "Do you want to be healed? Is that? Is that? Do you want some healing? Now, a lot of Jesus's apostles weren't educated." and a lot of them weren't the most brightest of individuals. If you read through the book of Acts as well, you find that Peter wasn't very bright at all. Um, but even for the apostles, the answers to the questions that Jesus asks in verses 21 to 23 that would have been obvious. Like, no, of course you don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed. That's silly. And yes, of course after you light a lamp, you put it on a stand. You'd want that lamp to be in the open as much as possible to illuminate as much space as possible. But what does this all mean? What is Jesus talking about? Well, like I mentioned, Jesus already explained the context of the parables. It's about the kingdom of God. And that means that if we look to the lamp in today's parable, we can equate it uh, maybe to a few different things. You could say that it represents the kingdom of God. You could say that the lamp represents Jesus himself, the king. Or you could say that the lamp represents the gospel, which is the message about the king and the kingdom. All three things are pretty synonymous. Uh, But the point of it all is to speak to the fact that the lamp isn't brought into the home so that it can remain hidden. That seems like an obvious fact. Uh, It almost seems insulting to our intelligence to make that even a question. Do you light something to put it under a bolt? Of course not. Um, but the reality is that as followers of Jesus, if we're honest, I think we have this tendency to constantly live out our lives keeping the lamp hidden under a basket or under a bed. Now, you might think, well, wait, wait hang on a sec. That, that's, not, that's not me. If anyone asks me, who do you live for? I will say Christ. I live for Jesus Christ, my Lord. I'll be bold in declaring that. I don't care who's offended by it. I will say Jesus Christ is my Lord, my God, my master, my savior, everything. That's absurd. I would never put Jesus under a bowl or a basket. Um, but I think for many of us, uh, we have this tendency. We get given all this light but we have this tendency to be satisfied with just a sliver of light. Or if we do have the light and we want more than a sliver, uh, we become satisfied with just having enough light for ourselves. And that's it. No interest in being a light to others. We're satisfied in coming to church on Sundays, maybe singing a song or two, hearing a sermon, And then we go home thinking, I've completed my service for the kingdom. I've fulfilled what the king desires of my life. And when it comes to this kind of a mentality to the Christian life, Jesus says what you're actually doing is you're putting the lamp under a basket or under a bed. Now let me give you, I guess, a more clearer example. I had a friend, uh, he's a dear friend of mine, and we went to Bible college together, and whilst he was studying at Bible college, he was keen to start, you know, a student ministry or pastoral role at church. So he applied at this, this Chinese church. Uh, he applied for the student minister role, and the lead pastor called him in for an interview. And they went through the standard formalities, you know, nice to meet you, you know, where did you study? What do you, you know, what are your goals and aspirations for ministry? And then he asked him this question. He asked my friend. How many people are you discipling at the moment? That I caught my friend off guard. He was just like, huh? No, no, no. I, this is my first student ministry. I, I have never been in ministry. I'm applying to join the ministry. And the pastor kind of furrowed his brows and looked at him and said, that's not a ministry question. That's a Christian life question. How many people are you discipling? And this isn't a jab at my friend. I'm not trying to like put my friend down. Because like, honestly, he's one of the most humble godliest guys I've ever met, very sincere, very humble. Um, But this interview opened his eyes and it opened mine as well when he shared the experience with me because we both realized that up until that point, the kingdom, we thought it was our primary purpose, but it hadn't really been our primary purpose. The kingdom up until that point, we were treating it like a compartment of our life. We both realized that for so long, we'd kind of gone with the flow. We both grew up in the Korean church. We knew what the, the cultural blueprint looked like for church and what the Christian life should look like. And we assumed everything about the kingdom instead of prayerfully looking to this book and prayerfully asking God each day, how can I be of service to the king and the kingdom today? How can I reorient my life so that it's aligned to the purposes of your kingdom today, tomorrow, and until the day I die? How can I better interact with people so that I can shine the light of the lamp, whether it be Christ, the kingdom, or the gospel, into their life? If we start aligning our heart and our purpose to center on the things of eternity, what you'll find... Is that your intimacy, and your God, uh, your intimacy and your walk with God, rather, will start to deepen more and more. I've had so many people ask me and ask other ministers. I've seen them ask other pastors and ministers of the faith, like, I, I can't feel the spirit of God in my life. I can't feel God's presence in my life. How can I get to a place where I feel the reality of God in my life? And I don't know if you're grappling with that today, but I'm telling you, not just as a pastor, but as someone that believes in this word, that if you center the purpose of your life, the primary purpose, not a compartment, not a secondary part, but the primary purpose of your life, if you center it around the king and his kingdom and intentionally live for his glory, that every day you wake up and you prayerfully ask, how can I live For your kingdom today, before you go to bed, you prayerfully ask, how can I live for your kingdom tomorrow? If you start becoming more intentional, I guarantee you that the presence of God will start to feel more and more tangible, more and more like a reality in your life. And Jesus promises this in verse 24. He promises more and more. He says in verse 24, Pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. But on the other hand, Jesus warns us about the dangers of doing the opposite, of having a surface-level, shallow, superficial faith, which we looked at last week when examining the different types of soil. The parable last week wasn't just about people that openly reject Jesus, but we saw that there were other types of soil where people seemed to have at least a surface level sincerity about the gospel. But the problem was that for these people, this type of confession of faith was interested in only accepting Christ as the giver of blessings, Christ as a saviour, but not Christ as Lord it was a type of confession that says, just give me enough Jesus so that it doesn't cramp my lifestyle and what I've got going on. It's a type of confession that has no interest in God's kingdom but is focused on carving out our own kingdom by using Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 25, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus, he speaks of people who we've probably encountered. People that were probably our friends at one point, maybe they're your friends now, where they, they had a taste. They were able to have a taste of his goodness, but they just weren't willing to completely surrender their lives to him because they fooled themselves into thinking that they could have the best of both worlds. For this person, they tried to receive the light or the lamp for themselves, but that was it. They took that light and covered it under a basket or a bed. And the warning from Lord Jesus in today's passage is that for that person, even the little that he has received, that's going to get taken away at some point. And I've seen this futile juggling act happen in so many individuals. And as a pastor, the tragedy for me isn't so much that they fall away from church but that they played this juggling act, balanced the world on one side, Jesus on the other, and somehow came to the erroneous conclusion that this world has much more to offer than King Jesus. This deception that they found something in the world that somehow bring more fulfillment and satisfaction than what Jesus can. And for me, as a pastor, that's, that's, for me, the greatest tragedy in ministry. It's why my heart breaks when I see kids go through year 12, graduate, and then they slip through the cracks, never to be seen again. But you know what? According to today's passage, hope isn't lost for our friends, the people we encounter, or the year 12 students that get lost in the cracks, because God's designed for the mechanics of salvation The mechanics of the gospel is that life begets life. Life gives birth to life. And this means that as long as we walk alongside these people, invest our lives in these people, then hope isn't lost. And as long as we have hope, it means that we should never, ever quit. We should always be intentional about walking alongside those who don't know Christ or friends that we've seen fall away from Christ. And what we receive from Jesus in the remainder of today's passage are two parables and they're two encouragements to strengthen us in this endeavour. But it's hard work. I'm an introvert by nature. I might not seem like an introvert. I'm an introvert. I did the Maya Briggs test uh, earlier this morning again to see if I was still an INTJ. I am still an INTJ. I am introverted, and for introverts it's hard work. But even for extroverts, it's hard work. And I think that's why Jesus uses a lot of farming analogies. Because if anyone's worked, I don't know if you've ever worked on a farm, it is hard work. And the first encouragement we receive comes from verses 26 to 29. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he does not know how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, going back to my story uh, about my friend that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, I still can't believe he took the pizza with him. But he took the pizza with him and he went home. And I stayed back in that shed. And I remember for the next hour, I just prayed and, um, I was actually very angry and I prayed, uh, I prayed demanding answers from God. I actually like yelled out, you promised. I believed these promises that you've given me in scripture. That if I proclaimed the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That anyone that hears will be like and repents and believes will be saved. Like I I was like I wanted to see this so much in my friend. I spent weeks every week. Any time he gave me a question, like the typical atheist asks, like where 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 did dinosaurs go in the Bible, like stuff like that. It's like I spent weeks trying to come up with not like shallow like textbook answers, but something deep and tangible that would be like oh okay, okay that makes sense. I researched, I watched, like there's so many lectures and seminars on YouTube. Like I watched all of them so that I could answer all these questions. And for three months or three or four months every week, I would present the gospel at the end of that that discussion each week. I'd present the gospel in a different way every week for four months. And now he's gone home. He's taken my pizza. And he's no more of a believer than when we started this Four months ago. Why? I was angry. And as I continued to pray that evening, it was one of the few times that I felt God really pressing the answer into my heart. It was like a knife that he stuck into me. And he said to me, you're trying to convert him not by relying on the Spirit of God, but by trying to be an effective speaker. You spent so much time preparing clear answers. They were good answers. Clear answers. But you barely spent any time in prayer for the Spirit of God to transform his heart. And so from that day, I remember praying. I I didn't meet him again after that. I wasn't going to buy him pizza, but... I, I prayed and I thought it was like one of the first times that like I ever fasted seriously. And I prayed and I fasted and I'd seen him at church. And then one day I remember I was scrolling through Facebook. This is like, this had been about like three or four years after Facebook had first ever appeared. This is how long ago it was. Um, and I saw a status he uploaded in his newsfeed. And he wrote, and I quote, I don't know how this happened, and I can't explain what changed, but from this day forth, I give my life to Christ. Now, the reason I share this testimony uh, is because for me, it aligns with the encouragement that Jesus gives us in verses 26 to 29. Because the farmer in these verses, he sows the seeds, but he doesn't, like, he's got no idea what's going to happen. He has no idea how the seed sprouts and grows. All he did was sow the seeds faithfully. And then it says that he went to sleep. And then God gave the growth. And this should be a timely encouragement for any of us. Because sometimes sowing seeds in unbelievers or sowing seeds in the lives of people that went to church and fell away, maybe some of your friends, maybe you can relate to this, this process is very painful like it sometimes it just feels like you're bashing your head against the door it's like it feels like a never ending process that produces no fruit but in this first encouragement we see that even though it feels like the sowing is in vain that according to the scriptures our sowing is never ever in vain second encouragement jesus says in verses 30 to 32 and he said with what can we compare The kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes larger than all the plants, all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Uh, What I love about this parable is that it shows that the fulfilment of the kingdom of God is an inevitability as citizens of God's kingdom, the reality is that we will face failure sometimes in our ministry endeavors. Um, We will struggle a lot. We're not immune to the attacks of Satan. We're not immune to spiritual warfare. We will struggle a lot and experience defeat sometimes. However, what I love about this encouragement is that defeat, it means that defeat will never define our primary identity. The mustard seed, as small as it is, I, I googled what a mustard seed looked like. It's tiny. It's not the smallest seed, but it is. it's like a little speck. And then I googled what a mustard tree looks like. It's pretty big. The mustard seed, according to this parable, it is going to grow into a tree. And despite what the world and what Satan might throw at us, even if it does end up feeling like an uphill battle for so many long periods of our life, the encouragement that Jesus gives us is that the outcome, the final outcome, is always going to be an eternal victory because of what Jesus has accomplished. And this ultimate eternal victory is not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. And so the first encouragement that Jesus gave us was that sowing, our sowing, even though it feels like it's in vain, never in vain. Second encouragement is that the victory of the kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom is a matter of, not a matter other of if, but when. And that's how today's passage ends. Now, before I go, so I've only got one application for today. Uh, actually, I'm trying to shorten my sermons a little bit. Um, but before I go into the application uh, I just want to share a disclaimer. Like I, every week, I try to come up with the so what of a passage. Um, and I try to come up with applications that I'm, I'm hoping is helpful for you guys. But, uh, I just want to share a disclaimer that the applications I give are not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive, exhaustive list, rather, um, of the passage. But I want to tell you guys that because it's not an exhaustive list, um, I encourage you guys to reflect on the passage throughout the week meditate on it and prayerfully ask god show me more show me more ways that i can apply this passage into my life so that i can be a more effective servant of the kingdom maybe even have conversations with each other during the week how did you go applying mark chapter 4 verses 21 to 32 in your passage or in your life this week Um, maybe you can share with each other what worked well, what didn't work well. Anyway, to conclude today's sermon, I just want to share one short application, and that's to strive to be followers that live primarily for the kingdom. The opening parable of today's passage gave the rhetorical question about what you would do with a lamp. And we obviously know we wouldn't put it under a basket You wouldn't put it under a bed. You don't have to go to North Sydney Boys to know that you don't do that. Uh, But more often than not, this so easily becomes a representation of our lives. Where the king and the kingdom no longer become of primary importance to us, but instead, and maybe it's not intentional, but we flip our priorities. Where it becomes, you know, the only time I desire and seek Christ is when he can help me carve out my own kingdom. And the danger of living our lives that move in this particular trajectory, even though it seems harmless, is that your life will start to become more and more about you. My life will start to become more and more just about me. Where Christ is only, it's only, he's only of importance, as long as he doesn't cramp my lifestyle, as long as he grants me prosperity instead of requiring sacrifice, as long as I can come to church and be served and receive something instead of being required to serve. And I'm just going to put it bluntly. This isn't the life that Christ has called us to. The cardinal ethic of Christianity is not success. It is sacrifice. When people say, I want to be like Christ, I think so often that rolls off our tongue so easily that we forget that Christ was all about service and sacrifice. We're called to live a life of sacrifice, a life of submission, a life of service, a life of holiness, and a life that is kingdom-focused primarily. And being kingdom-focused means prayerfully asking God each day, how can I live out this day for you? Being kingdom focused means intentionally investing your life into the community of church, whether it's making a disciple within FLM, making a disciple outside of FLM, whether it's registering to serve as a teacher in JIDA, This wasn't planned, but it's a nice segue. The serve in Gita or HMX. These are precious ministries and precious opportunities to be able to serve in church and to help people get plugged into the community that we have in the body of Christ. This parable of the lamp stand should stir us to ask ourselves and God every day, how can I live out this day so that this lamp isn't hidden, so that I don't put it under a bowl or a bed, but instead I put it on a stand so this light can be revealed to as many people as possible so that my life can be a reflection of the Christ. Um, I want us to enter into a time of prayer now, and I don't know what your life has looked. I'm still trying to get to know each and every one of you. I've made it a mission to meet five new people each week, but I don't know where you stand Maybe you decided that this year uh, was just going to be a year that you're going to come and you just want to be served until you get to a place where you're ready to serve. Uh, But I would impart to you that 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 kind of logic contradicts uh, what the scriptures, how the scriptures call us to live. Uh, So in this moment, I want you to ask God and ask the Spirit of God to open your heart and reveal His heart to you, His heart for how He desires you to live the life that He has planned for you, what it should look like in the context of FLM and in the world. Ask Him to give you clarity to be able to reevaluate what it means to place that lamp, to take it out from under the bowl and from under the bed, and to place it on a lampstand. Ask Him to reveal it to you today, every day. Tomorrow, next week, how to live this out. And pray for the Spirit's power, for obedience, to be able to live a life primarily focused and centered on the kingdom of God. Let's pray. submit to the Lordship of King Jesus, and be able to live each day as as subjects of your kingdom, with a heart cry and a desire to live each day out him. Ask, what is your will for my life today? Be able to see each opportunity as a God-given opportunity to embrace and live up for the kingdom. Father, I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the parables in chapter 4. And Lord, we, we, we pray that we wouldn't come away from this just having answers. Not just with an understanding of what these parables mean, but Lord, we want that to translate into transformation in our life. That we wouldn't be satisfied with keeping the lamp, whether it's the kingdom, the king, or the gospel that we wouldn't be satisfied with keeping a sliver of it for ourselves and putting it under a bowl or a basket, but that we would live intentional kingdom-centered lives that make the primary purpose of our life each day all about the king, all about the kingdom, and all about the gospel. Father, sometimes we, we, we say to people that we, we don't know what to pray for. Lord, let this be an eternal prayer topic. Every day, that if we're ever at a loss of what to pray for, that we would pray to you, how can we live this day out for you? To pray, give me an opportunity to be able to live for you. Give me an opportunity to be able to serve your kingdom. And Lord, we pray for the Spirit's power that when that opportunity does present itself, when the Spirit of God creates an opportunity for us, that we would respond in obedience, that we would hear the kingdom call and make it our obsession to see the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, glorified in this fallen world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.